Welcome to Neo Chats, an interview-style podcast focusing on educating neonatal nurses, caring for newborns and their families, hosted by Jenna Morton. It is a project of the Canadian Association of Neonatal Nurses, a nonprofit organization committed to the health and well-being of newborns and their families. Thank you for joining us for our eighth series of Neo Chats. I'm your host, Jenna Morton. This season, we'll be diving into the world of infectious diseases in the NICU. We'll touch on a different disease each episode, giving a short refresher of its pathology, how it impacts neonates, and what healthcare providers should know about transmission, treatment, and more. We begin with a spotlight on RSV. To discuss this, I'll be joined by Dr. Joanne Langley. She's a pediatric infectious disease physician based at the IWK Health Center and the Canadian Center for Vaccinology. She's also a professor at Dalhousie University, cross-appointed in the Departments of Community Health and Epidemiology and Pediatrics. Her work focuses on vaccine policy, and she has a particular interest in the prevention of respiratory infections, such as RSV. Welcome to NeoChats. Thank you for inviting me. I'm quite interested to, to listen to what you have to share with us today. We're going to go kind of right back to the basics to begin, and you're going to tell us all about what RSV is. So RSV became kind of famous in 2022-23. Um, but for those of us in the pediatric world, it was uh, this annual visitor that comes every winter and wreaks the most havoc really on children under a year of age. But it's a virus that infects us throughout our lifespans. So RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. So it's a virus. And the syncytial part refers to back in the 1950s when it was first discovered, they grew it on little cell plates and it made the, the cells bind together. So they kind of formed a syncytium. Um, but it doesn't do that exactly in humans. So it's just kind of a relic of a prior time. So it's a respiratory virus. It causes annual epidemics throughout the lifespan. And why is it such a particular concern and, and so impactful for that under one year age frame? In the first year of life, and even in the first two years of life, one's whole body is still developing. But the respiratory tract in particular has smaller uh, size airways and the alveoli um, are not as large and their chest wall is not quite as structured it's cartilaginous and soft so more susceptible to collapse if there are pulmonary pressures um, that would allow it to do so so the illnesses that children uh, in the first six months of life say get are one is apnea so they just stop breathing and they may not have any other respiratory symptoms they could just stop breathing uh, so we say apnea is so a 20 seconds pausing your breathing. So those those can be life-threatening if they occur. And in the developing world, in the low and middle-income countries, there's up to 200,000 deaths a year from RSV. And probably a good chunk of that is just children who may um, uh, have an episode at home and, and no, that is not noticed. So apnea is one. The most well-known phenomenon that occurs is something called bronchiolitis. So we know bronchitis, we know, which is the, you know, the trachea that gets inflamed. 
The bronchioles are those terminal parts of one's respiratory tree just before the alveoli. They're very small diameter, the size of a sesame seed. And so those are the where RSV causes inflammation. So there is swelling and there's extra um, secretions, and that can cause those to plug. And then when that plugs, there isn't ventilation to the distal, to the alveoli. And uh, what you see clinically is tachypnea, so fast breathing. You may see retractions, intercostal recessions. You may see runny nose and cough. Uh, that usually occurs after a prodromal uh, respiratory tract infection. So they may have a little bit of a runny nose and or be a little bit off. And then they go on to that more of a lower respiratory tract presentation. So that's probably the most common illness or phenotype. And that accounts for, you know, one to 2% of all children under one being admitted. Uh, and that's actually the most common cause of hospitalization, not just lower respiratory tract, anything in the first year of life. Uh, so it, it has a big impact on our healthcare systems. And we can understand why the emerges were overloaded when we had that extra RSV season last year. Just to finish off on clinical presentations, it also can cause a picture like pneumonia, and it can cause a bronchitis. It can also cause a cough illness, and then it can also present as croup. So you can have a, you know, that striderous inspiratory hoop sound. Um, so those are those are some of the the main illnesses. And so children under one year of age are at increased risk because it's their first infection. They have no pre-existing immunity unless uh, per chance their mom has had a previous infection and might have been exposed during pregnancy or in the future got a vaccine, in which case mom will increase the amount of antibody going across the placenta to the baby and they will have some protection. So there is a correlation um, with maternal antibody and infant protection. Yeah. So while we're talking about that sense of protection, what currently do we have to offer, particularly um, infants in the neonatal setting, for protection against RSV? So um, the first line of defense is um, physical means like infection prevention and control measures. So um, many neonatal units would have measures in place to identify visitors that might have an upper respiratory tract infection or occupational health procedures to make sure that sick people aren't working, you know, one-on-one -on -one with, with a very uh, precious little vulnerable uh, newborn. Um, then uh, anyone who masking may be needed in some cases. A child in an incubator is going to be a little more protected than one in an open cot. Um, the highest risk months are during the winter, so that's when you really need to have your guard up. And hospitals may have special measures that are different from the rest of the season in order to protect uh, kids against RSV. So that's infection prevention and control. If you do have an infant that is affected, it's droplet and respiratory uh, intervention. So if someone has RSV, what we would do is wear a gown, gloves, um, and facial protection. So either a full shield mask or eye protection and a mask so that the droplets that are generated from the infant's um, respiratory tract don't land on us and then we spread it on to someone else. 
then what do we have uh, in terms of protecting in the children that are hospitalized? We generally don't recommend they get the palvazumab while they're in the hospital because they should be protected by those measures that I just discussed. Um, th those do work. Before they go home, though, if they are eligible, there's a, a monoclonal anti-RSV antibody called palivazumab that we've been using in Canada back since the early 2000s. And it is um, a humanized monoclonal antibody directed at one protein uh, in the RSV surface. And so uh, it's injected by into the muscle five times, so monthly during the winter season. And that gives children enough antibody titer to uh, reduce their risk of hospitalization should they encounter RSV and start to have an infection. What's new on the block are, are two interventions that are coming in potentially in 2023, 2024. One is the uh, a new monoclonal antibody called Nersevimab, which uh, acts longer than pelvizumab, so it only requires one dose. And that one dose will last the baby for the whole season. So that's really exciting because it means there isn't five injections, five visits, five painful encounters with the healthcare system, five trips for families to have to go somewhere to get those injections. And um, the clinical trial results show it has a higher efficacy, not in a one-on-head-to-head -head 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 comparison, but compared to the retrospective results. The efficacy is, you know, up to 75% in preventing hospitalizations, but also medically attended visits. So it prevents those outpatient visits as well. And then there's a maternal vaccine that's been authorized in the U.S., not yet in Canada, but it's, I expect it will be soon. So mom would get that during pregnancy. That will provide a boost to her so that she will transfer more antibodies across the percentage of baby. And those should last four to six months after delivery. So lots of options in, in our future. You are invited to join us this October for the CAN 2023 National Conference. October 1st and 2nd at the Mars Center in Toronto, we will be celebrating neonatal nursing, our path forward together. This two-day conference will feature an inspiring and dynamic lineup of national and international speakers, experts and leaders who will address today's emerging topics and trends that are forging the way for improved neonatal nursing care and newborn health. The conference will also include sessions hosted in partnership with the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation, poster sessions, an exhibit hall and networking opportunities. CAN is also collaborating with FICARE, Family Integrated Care, who will be hosting their conference September 30th at SickKids. If you have not registered yet, now is the time. Early bird sales end August 28th. Visit neonatalcan.ca for all conference information and registration. CAN would also like to acknowledge and thank all of our sponsors and exhibitors for their generous support and partnership. It's a very exciting time when something new like this is coming into play. What should our audience of NICU nurses be keeping in mind and watching for as these new things come into play? So one is that the National Advisory Committee on Immunization will make recommendations, but not until 2024. Um, 
about the kind of population-wide use of these two interventions. So we have a maternal vaccine and we have nirsevimab. Should we give nirsevimab to all, the whole birth cohort? Should we give it just to the high risk? Should we vaccinate all the mothers and just give the babies the, that are at high risk nirsevimab or who missed a maternal vaccine? Those are the kind of policy questions that NASI will be dealing with. But when they do publish their results, the provinces, it is likely will follow a lot of that direction. So this is kind of an interim year, 2022-23. And I think they should expect a lot of diversity across the provinces and territories, because I know some provinces are planning to give quite a lot of children or seven up and have contracts that they're working with on the supplier and others at the other extreme are going to wait until the guidance comes uh, until the maternal vaccine is, is on board. So diversity, so they should check with their province or territory to find out what they're doing. There will likely be, if you're a neonatal nurse, you're, you will likely know about some kind of Palazumab province in your re, uh, program in your region. And so there are likely um, notices to providers about eligibility for this year. Um, in this interim year, Health Canada asked um, CADF, so that's the Canadian um, Agency for Evaluation of Health Technologies, whether those are medicines or drugs or, or devices, and it makes recommendations on the economics, whether they're, they're a, a good, wise purchases. So they did interim recommendations. Those are posted on their website. And I can provide you that link. You could provide it um, to readers. So it did recommend that all children 32 weeks gestation and less be offered near Sevamap. Um, that's a little different than the previous recommendations for Palvizumab. The other recommendations are pretty similar. So congenital heart disease that's hemodynamically significant, those children should be offered prophylaxis. Um, uh, the premature babies we just talked about, severe uh, immunodeficiencies and, and so on. So a real interim year where we kind of have to adjust to this year and then there'd be likely more stable um, programs in 2024. Knowing that it's going to be something that's talked about in the media again this year, both potentially because of how many children you know, present with it, but also because of these things that are changing in terms of what we have to treat it and it not being completely, you know, the same province to province. We might find our nurses getting a lot of questions from parents that they're not used to. What things can our nurses say to parents if they're asking about, well, why am I not getting this when I hear about this thing in the news? That's always difficult. So when I talk with it's because sometimes there are children who are not eligible. And the if we go back to the 1990s when the clinical trials were done, the original clinical trials included children up to 35 weeks gestation. But ultimately, in programs in Canada, we offered it to a younger gestational age because it would be too expensive to offer it up to, you know, almost term, it just would be too expensive and it was decided it wasn't cost effective. Those kinds of uh, rationale are difficult to explain to patients, you know, because it's not that it's not safe or that it doesn't work. It is safe and it does work. 
but it's a societal approach where someone is making a decision about what's cost effective, what's the best use of scarce healthcare dollars. However, you know, there are a lot of things we can do to prevent the risk of RSV in infants. So, you know, this is a kind of an old counsel, but I kind of encourage families not to take their newborn out to um, family gatherings or shopping malls in that first month, especially during the winter. Um, I, I think that's kind of risky. They are in that immunocompromised state if they're, they're going home uh, during the winter. Uh, avoiding particulate matter and smoke. So that's cigarette smoking, cannabis smoking. That is clearly a risk factor for a lot of respiratory tract diseases and for some invasive infections. You know, household exposure to um, cigarette smoke increases your risk of pneumococcal disease as well because it damages your airway. And we have all these wonderful defense mechanisms in our respiratory tract. You know, we have cilia and this lovely mucus blanket, and we have our microbiome that's all working to defend us, our cough reflex, our sneezing. But we can interfere with those defense mechanisms by smoking and and particulate matter that might be, you know, exposure to a, a campfire or something. Um, and then, you know, if someone is sick with a respiratory tract infection, that, that would be the time to not have what face-to-face exposure with a newborn or a vulnerable baby. Uh, and if parents get infections, you know, that happens. If siblings bring the infection into the household to wear a mask so that there's that droplet exposure for the period that you've got, you know, your runny nose or cough. Um, you just basically do your best. It's, it's RSV can still happen. Um, in Canada, we're very good at taking care of babies who have RSV. So this severe, severe illness that like leads to, you know, uh, death is uncommon because we, um, can support babies through that, um, time when they need respiratory support, whether it's with CPAP or, uh, oxygen support, or sometimes babies can't feed and they just need, an NG tube and liquids to get them through. So it would be ideal to prevent, but if they do get it, we do have a a good track record of taking care of these babies and and helping them get through it. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with in terms of RSV and what our nurses should be keeping top of mind? Well, I think, you know, those neonatal nurses, they have them, you know, they're spending all day with the parents in most of our units now. Parents are staying in the room. And the parents look to healthcare providers like neonatal nurses as expert advisors. So what you say really matters. If you recommend vaccinations, you know, palvazumab if they're eligible, washing hands, whatever the good health advice you give, that comes with so much credibility. Uh, We know that particularly from vaccinations. If a recommended healthcare provider says that it's a good idea, uh, families are much more likely to follow through. So, so you can do a lot as, as they're kind of accompanying them on their journey through an ICU. Thank you so much for taking the time to share this with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Professor Dr. Joanne Langley is head of the Infectious Diseases Division at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
Her research focuses on vaccine-preventable diseases, respiratory infections, and communicable disease control. NeoChats is a project of the Canadian Association of Neonatal Nurses. This podcast is supported by Sanofi Canada as part of an educational sponsorship. Sanofi Canada has not influenced the selection of interviewees, questions, or editing of the content. The content producer and host is Jenna Morton. Technical production by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub. For more information on the association, visit our website at www.neonatalcan.ca or our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages.